0: Verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they cho- chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will, shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continued And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart So the Lord said I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Well, keep your Bible open and let's come to God and ask him for his help now, so let's pray. Oh Lord God, we do thank you for the great privilege we have now of hearing from you as your word is taught. We ask you please to enable that word to be taught accurately and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that as this happens, you will speak to all of our hearts Any that need to come to you for salvation will come to you and be saved. Any that are already saved will be strengthened in their faith and helped by you to serve you better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are coming now in our series in the early chapters of Genesis to the part of the Bible that speaks about the most terrible judgment that this world has ever experienced and will ever experience until Jesus comes again. What sometimes people call Noah's flood or the great flood. Now, people often tend to treat this story as a sort of a a children's fairy tale. And uh, there are children's books that that uh, that have been written about it with all sorts of colourful illustrations of Noah and his ark and, and the animals going in two by two and the rainbow and everybody thinks, oh, what a lovely story. And there are, no doubt, probably we've seen children's toys you know, the boat and you know, all these different pairs of animals and children put the animals into the boat and it all seems so, so nice and so fun. But what people forget, or perhaps never know, never known, is that this in fact was a terrible calamity. A great disaster that came upon the world. Now people talk about a climate emergency or a climate disaster going on because the world's getting a bit warmer. Well, this really was a disaster. This really was a calamity. The whole population of the world was destroyed apart from eight people. So, uh, uh, God uh, was, um, it was it was an awful thing. And it tells us About the sinfulness of man, this story, as we look at these early verses in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6, it tells us what why God felt it necessary to bring this terrible judgment upon mankind. And the reason is because of the sinfulness of man. And because God is a pure and holy God, who must punish sin, and so there's a lot we can learn from this this passage about the sinfulness of sin and uh, the holiness and righteousness of God, but there's something else as well that we learn from this passage which comes up which will come up more as we look at the story for unfolds which is that God graciously provided a way of salvation for Noah and his family. And just as Noah was saved, so too we can be saved if we take the means. God provided the means for Noah to be saved. By faith Noah took that means and If we exercise faith in the same way, we also can be saved from the judgment that we deserve. So uh, I hope that if you are not yet saved, you will listen very carefully and God might use this passage to speak to you about your need to be saved through Christ and uh, you will come to Christ and if you are saved, I hope that this passage will help you to just be amazed all over again that God was so kind to you, a sinner. You deserved hell. But God's been gracious to you as He's been gracious to me. But also, I pray, hope that God will help us to see that we need to serve Him uh, with fear in our lives. So as we think about this passage, we want to do so of the three main headings. Uh, we will look at some detail underneath those headings, but the main headings are, first of all, the sinfulness of man, secondly, God's response to man's sin, and then thirdly, God's grace to those who believe. Well, first of all, then, we see the sinfulness of man. And this comes out itself in three matters. First of all, we have the sinfulness of the sons of God. Now, this comes out in um, verses 1 and 2. You see there, it says... When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now this passage, some of you might be aware, has been quite widely debated and discussed. And uh, the the question that is under discussion is, who are the sons of God that are being spoken of in this passage? Now, some would say, some have argued that the sons of God are fallen angels. And they say that what happened was that these angels rebelled against God and Got attracted to women, humans, human women, and married them, had sex with them, and as a result, they were born to these women, uh, sort of semi-human or superhuman hybrids, half angels, half half men, with superhuman powers, and they would say this is the reason why. God had to bring about the flood because of the of this of what happened. Well uh, they, they they would say that the, the reason they, the one part verse they point to is in, in Job chapter one verse six when the angels are spoken of, it talks about them about the sons of God presenting themselves before uh, God's throne. Now, in my view, there are two significant problems with that view. One is that um, angels are spirits and are not physical beings. Um, Hebrews 1 verse uh, speaks about um, the angels. says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? So, Uh, Angels are spirits, so are are demons, spirits, and so they're not capable of having physical relations uh, with with women. Um, But then also, Jesus explicitly says in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 30 that angels don't marry. Uh, He says, at the resurrection, uh, men neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Angels don't get married. So then, who are the sons of God that are spoken of in this passage? Well, I think the answer we have to say is that the sons of God were believers. Um, The Bible often describes believers as the sons of God. We who who believe we have been adopted as the children of God. Uh, Many examples could be given. For example, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So, uh, I think we can safely say that the sons of God who are referred to in this passage are those who were believers now you might some of you might have been here a few weeks ago when we were when we thought about verse 26 of chapter 4 at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord there were those who were true believers who were calling on the name of the Lord and who were therefore adopted as the children of God. And so what it seems to be saying is that is that what happened was that the that the sons of God, the believers, instead of looking for godly women to be their uh, their spouses, instead of looking for uh, for, 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 for true believers they, were, they went by physical attraction. And they, uh, they saw that, that, that women were attra- other, but unbelieving women were attractive, and they took these unbelieving women uh, to be their spouses. And uh, this was very grievous to God, and led to a lot of trouble in the world. And the Bible does warn us about mixed marriages. Um, when, God, when the people of God went into the land, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 2, we, we read that when, 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 when the people were going into the land, uh, God said to them that they must not intermarry with the Canaanites. He says, you must not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So God told his people, when they're going to the land, they were not to intermarry with the with the the other nations. Now that wasn't racism. It's because if they married those tribes, they would land up following the gods, the false gods of those nations. This was the problem for Solomon, wasn't it? Solomon, the son of David, he took many wives from the surrounding nations and his heart was turned away from the Lord. Started to worship their idols. And in the New Testament, we're also told that uh, we, should, we should marry believers. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 Paul says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 6, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so it would seem that the problem was here that the sons of God, the true believers, instead of looking for godly women to be their wives, they married whom they fancy. And this led to great problems for them. Well, there's an application for us here, isn't there? Those of you who are not married yet, uh, it's good to be married. But look for a Christian spouse. Not just somebody who says he or she is Christian, but for somebody who is clearly and obviously born again and seeking uh, the Lord. Well, Another thing we see in this passage as we're thinking about the sin is that there were these mighty sinners. We read in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, who were these Nephilim? Um, You'll see that the footnote there says giants. But actually, we're not told that they were giants. We're told they were very strong, Uh, but we're not told they were giants. The only other place where the word Nephilim is used is in Numbers 13 and verses 32 to 33. Which records the report of the spies who went into the land. But remember, the spies who went into the land were exaggerating the problems in that land. So I'll just read you what it says there. It says they brought to the people a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we've gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are of great height, And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed ourselves like Rospers, so we seemed to them. Now remember, they were exaggerating. They were painting a deliberately false picture of that land. So we don't know really who these Nephilim were, but except to say that they were clearly very grossly sinful and very powerful. They were famous for their sins. And uh, it reminds us of of, um, of, um, of, 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 of Lamech uh, in, in chapter, chapter 4 um, who was famous for his murders uh, who boasted about how he would kill people. And so these people were were big-time sinners, big-time, powerful, sinful people that came as a result of the uh, the sinful union between uh, believers and unbelievers. And there's a further warning there about the danger, then, of mixed marriages. But then we see also, thirdly, under this heading of the sinfulness of man, we see that everybody had a corrupt heart. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuing. That is his description of Man as he is, in his natural state. Great wickedness and every intention and thought of the heart, only evil continued. Now we, we must ask ourselves the question: was, this, was it that the people before the flood were particularly bad? And they got wiped out and then people were better after that. Well the answer is no. Because if we go forward to chapter 8 and verse 21. We see that God says that he's not going to wipe man out again. But not because men are better. But in spite of the fact that men are sinful. He says, uh, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Man it's still sinful. And in fact, when we go through the scripture, we find that this is the story that is told again and again, that men are utterly sinful. When I say men, of course I mean men and women, don't get me wrong, no, I'm not saying just, just the male... Gender is bad and the female gender is is fine. No, using the word men collectively, male and female, there is this corruption that is in the heart of all. Let me give you some verses Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. And Jesus himself also taught. About the sickness. And the corruption of the heart. Matthew 15 verse 9. He said out of the heart. Come evil thoughts. Murder. Adultery. Sexual immorality. Theft. False witness. Slander. And. uh, Also in. In. In in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says, Although they knew God, they did not honour him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the problem. Men have got hearts that are evil, that are darkened. They don't want to worship God, they prefer to worship idols instead. Ephesians 4, verse 18, uh, talking about mankind in general, unbelievers, he says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So what God says about people before the flood is true of you and it's true of me in a natural state. It could be said about you, you could say this honestly, my wickedness is greater than the earth. And every intention of the thoughts of my heart is only evil Continue. That's you, and that's me. That's how we are. Evil and corrupt in the sight of God. Now, if you've been born again, then a change will have happened in your fundamental motivation, thanks be to God. But still, you will be having sin residing in your flesh until you die. You're never going to be perfect. There is that corruption there. Which is in every single one of us. So that's the first thing that, to see. That what, what provoked the flood. What led to the flood. Was the sinfulness of man. And that sinfulness... That there is in, in, was in man is still around. It's in you and it's in me. We are no better in and of ourselves. We are no better than the people who perish in that flood. Now, let's go on then. I want to start to, to notice God's response to what he observed of the sin of mankind. Now, Let's, look at, let's consider now verse 6. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. He talks at the end of verse 7. that He says, I am sorry that I've made you. That's the way our translation puts it. Now, you might say, well, how could it be that, that God regrets anything? Anyway. He's got to have to say, oh, well, I'm sorry guys, I made a mistake that. You know, is that, you might think that when you read that first of all. You might think, oh, God is saying, oh, I've taken it by surprise. I never knew it would be this bad as this. Oh dear, what am I doing going to do? Go talk up on. Of course. That cannot be the case. For many reasons. First of all, because God knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. God knew when he made Adam and Eve exactly what was going to happen. He'd already planned it all out. He'd already planned out how he's going to bring out that salvation. He'd already chosen his elect. So, you know, that's not God God, uh, God is not taken by surprise by anything. Neither can it be that God you know, makes a mistake. God doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't say, oh, oh no. Got that wrong? Of course not. God is perfect in his wisdom. Perfect in in, in all of his decisions. Also, God uh, doesn't change his mind. Uh, and, and he doesn't change. Numbers 21, verse 19. Uh, Balaam, who's you know, a wicked man, he spoke under the inspiration of the Spirit. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of mind man that he should change his mind. God doesn't, you know, he's not like us. We, we're, we're inconsistent, aren't we? we? say, right, we're going to do this and then a few weeks few, Some days, a few hours later we say, oh no, we're going to do something else. Mm. That's sort of, the way we are because we're inconsistent. But God is not inconsistent. Mm. God does not change. Mm. Um, James 1 verse 17 says, God is the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow of change. God says in Malachi, in Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. He's the unchanging God. So how are we to understand this? Where he says, you know, that he, it says there, he, he regretted that he made, Well, clearly this is a figure of speech. But as well as a figure of speech, it does express something very, very important. Which is that God was how can how can I put it very unhappy with the sin of man. And now again this is challenging for us to understand because at one level God is the ever-blessed God. Mm. Nothing can disturb God. In one sense, that's true. And yet, God in his perfection does not remain unmoved by the sin of man. Or for that matter, by the obedience of man. You know, the scripture says that, that he's pleased when we obey him, if we're as believers. But the sin of man provokes this very, very deep response from God. This has to be the teaching of scripture. Now, um, some of you might know, there are, there are people, some people talk about the impassibility of God. And I can see where they come from in the sense that God cannot be disturbed. God cannot be diminished by anybody or anything. Nobody can take away from God, of course. But God chooses to respond. He chooses. And and, and in fact, his very righteousness and holiness, in a sense, forces him to respond. Where there is that weakness in man, he cannot just oh he cannot stand by just see it. No. There is the, it, it provokes this or brings forth this very, very strong response from God. Now so uh, and, and, we, and and this is a reflection of his character, this is a reflection of his holiness. That God, as we read earlier in the psalm, Psalm 11, the Lord loves the righteous. He loves righteous deeds. He very, very strongly loves what is good. But that very love of what is righteous leads God to hate, to loathe what is sinful. Now, uh, there is that word which comes up in our translations <coughs> sometimes. The word abomination. Mm. What does that mean? That means something which is loathsome. Something which is hateful, uh, horrible. Mm. If you abominate something, you detest it. And that's the word that's used, that God uses again and again. It, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to speak about his attitude towards sin. Let me give you some examples. Leviticus 18.22, speaking about homosexuality. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Deuteronomy 7.25, talking about idolatry. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with the fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is in them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, speaking about occult practices. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or as a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, a necromancer, or one who inquires for the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Deuteronomy 25 verse 16 talks about being dishonest in your business dealings. Do you realise that's an abomination to God? Yeah. All who act dishonestly are an abomination to to the Lord your God. Now let me ask a question. Has God changed? Did God hate those things then? And then now He said, oh well there. Really mm. Of course not. So. And it was because of those sorts of things that the people were doing before the flood that God was so But has God become more tolerant now? You know, people say, oh, well, of course the God of the Old Testament is all wrathful and angry, but the God of the New Testament is all love. No. Jesus told us more about hell than anybody else. Jesus talked about how 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 in, in, in hell the fire will never be quenched, the worm will never die. No, God hasn't changed. What God hated thousands of years ago, he hates now. What he hated before the flood, he hates today. It's exactly the same. He's a holy God. And his hatred of sin has not changed. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, speaking about our present experience what's going on in the world now, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then speaking about the future wrath of God, Paul says, Romans chapter 2 verse 6, he says, he will render to each one according to his works To those who who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So we see that the sin of the people brought forth from God this very, very, very strong reaction because of his wholeness. And because of that, God if I may use the phrase, his patience started to wear thin. First, uh, verse, verse, uh, if we look at verse um, three, he says, then the Lord said my spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, there is a bit of debate there um, as to the interpretation. Some would translate that, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, And some also interpret that as talking about um, there's going to be a 120 years, year period of grace prior to the flood be an opportunity for people to repent or some interpret that as, as God saying he's going to reduce men's lifestyle, lifespan to 120 years so, I think it's, it's not necessarily it's a bit difficult to make up one's mind between the two views but the point is this there's only a limited opportunity that's the point there's only a limited opportunity the time will come when the opportunity to be saved will be over that's the point. And that's true to today, isn't it? We've only got our three score years and ten. Some of us are a long way through our three score years and ten. Some of us are past ourselves by not Are you right with God? And when Jesus comes again, it's too late. He's, it's finished and you never know when he's going to come back. God won't he won't he's very very patient. Paul says Peter says, doesn't he, in in his second letter, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. Yes, he is. But the time will come when that door will shut. Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Because many will try to enter and will not be able to. When the owner of the house gets up and shuts the door. You'll stand outside. No, sir, not open up, let me in. It'll be too late. There's no entry. And God, we see also, determined that he would destroy the earth. Verse 7. Or blot out those who live on earth. I will blot out man... Whom I have created from the face of the land, man, and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So God says that he's going to wipe out all of mankind except the Noah and his immediate family, which we come to. Now, if you know the end of the story, you'll know that God has promised that he's not going to send a worldwide flood again in response to a sacrifice that Noah made. Thank God that Noah made that sacrifice. But we should not think that there's never going to be a judgment. He said, as long as the earth endures, He's never going to send a worldwide flood again. But this world is not going to last forever. Jesus is going to come again. And Jesus um, references the flood, doesn't he? When when he's talking uh, in in Matthew 25, he's talking about about his second coming. Chapter 24, he's talking about his second coming. And he's saying about how it's going to be completely unexpected. And he said it'll be just like it was in the days of the flood. People eating and drinking, marrying, giving marriage. And then suddenly the flood came. And he said, that's just how it's going to be when he comes. People will be carrying on their normal lives eating, drinking, marrying. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But suddenly, Jesus will come again. And so we need to be ready. Uh, and uh, um, I'll just read those verses Um, it says Matthew 24 verse 36 concerning that day and hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven nor the son of man but the father only for as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the son of man as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware and the flood swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man you need to be ready you need to be right with the Lord Peter also references it um, uh, in his second letter chapter uh, 3 he he draws a comparison he talks about how people mock the idea of Jesus coming again and he says this. These people who mocked the idea of Jesus coming in, he says, they deliberately overlooked the fact that the, he- the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God, and by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And then he says, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the unlooking. So we need to learn that what happened in this great flood was a picture and illustration of something far worse that's going to happen when Jesus comes again. This world that we know will be destroyed and all those who are saved will be sent off to everlasting destruction in hell. But then there is also a third main thing that we see, which we won't don't have time we won't develop in detail today. We hope you look for that about a bit more in future weeks. But just to notice what it says in the last verse of our reading. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There was somebody who was saved. In this great disaster, there was somebody who was saved. And that person was Noah. Now, it does say in verse 9 that it says Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, that he walked with God. But the question is, how did that come about? Was it that Noah was a naturally good man? Was it that everybody else in the world was really evil, but then you've got this really good man in Noah? In his natural state, Noah was no different from anybody. He would have been the first to have said that every inclination of, the, of his heart was only evil all the time. He was a sinner. And notice he doesn't say, God saw Noah as a good man, and so he said, right, I'm going to... going okay, to bless Noah. It says there, Noah found favour. You know what, favour... It's the same word that we translate, grace. Undeserved kindness. It's not that now it's, oh, I've done all these good deeds, so I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through this flood. No, no, no. God showed us favour. If you follow that word through, um, it's always somebody who doesn't deserve something. Um, Abraham said to the visitors, Oh, if I found favour in your eyes, ask stay, don't Laban said to Jacob, after he treated him badly, If I found favour in your eyes, please stay. Jacob, after he'd come back to Esau and he wanted to apologise and he worried that Esau was going to kill him, he sends a gift to Esau. If I have cattle and donkeys and sheep, men servants, and maid servants, now, I'm sending you this message to my Lord that I may find favour in your eyes. I don't deserve this. I've not been an absolute horrible cat. I've been a, a cheat. I've mistreated you. But please don't find favour in your eyes. And Noah had cheated on God. Noah had been a sinner, like all of us. But he found favour. And this is the great thing you and I if you're a Christian if you have come to Christ you've found favour undeserved grace undeserved kindness God has saved you from, from the hell that you deserve not because of your life starts, but because of his kindness he's freely given you eternal life out of his bounty because of his kindness. And here's good news for you if you're not yet saved. The God who's been gracious to many of us here, He's holding out his hands to you and saying, I want to be gracious to you. I want to wash away your sins. I want to give you eternal life. I've sent Jesus to die on the cross in the place of sinners. And if you come to Jesus, you can have your sins forgiven. You can have eternal life. Have you come to him yet? If not, I beg you to do so. Come to him. Trust in him. That you might not perish. Remember that verse, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only. God and Son, that whoever believes in him, what? Might not perish but have a life. Come to him that you may not perish that you may have eternal life. Well, may God uh, uh, write his word upon our hearts. And whatever is necessary for us, maybe it's for some it's that we need to Come to Christ for salvation, maybe for others we need to remember the grace of God. Well, we're going to sing now a hymn about that grace, number 772. And then we will um, move to um, share the Lord's Supper.